Section 15, Part 1 of Chapter 2 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by J.C. Guan. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blexton. Book 1, Chapter 2, Part 1. Chapter the Second of the Parliament. We are next to treat of the rights and duties of persons as they are members of society and stand in various relations to each other. These relations are either public or private, and we will first consider those that are public. The most universal public relation by which men are connected together is that of government, namely, as governors and governed, or, in other words, as magistrates and people. Of magistrates also some are supreme, in whom the sovereign power of the state resides. Others are subordinate, deriving all their authority from the supreme magistrate, accountable to him for their conduct, and acting in an inferior secondary sphere. In all tyrannical governments, the supreme magistracy or the right both of making and of enforcing the laws, is vested in one and the same man, or one and the same body of man, and wherever those two powers are united together, there can be no public liberty. The magistrate may enact tyrannical laws, and execute them in a tyrannical manner, since he is possessed, in quality of dispenser of justice, with all the power which he, as legislator, thinks proper to give himself. But, where the legislative and executive authority are in distinct hands, the former will take care not to entrust the latter with so large a power as may tend to the subversion of its own independence, and therewith of the liberty of the subject. With us, therefore, in England, this supreme power is divided into two branches, the one legislative, to wit, the Parliament, consisting of King, Lords, and Commons, the other Executive, consisting of the King alone. It will be the business of this chapter to consider the British Parliament, in which the legislative power, and, of course, the supreme and absolute authority of the State, is vested by our Constitution. The original or first institution of Parliament is one of those matters that lie so far hidden in the dark ages of antiquity, that the tracing of it out is a thing equally difficult and uncertain. The word Parliament itself, or colloquium, as some of our historians translated, is comparatively of modern date, derived from the French, and signifying the place where they meet and conferred together. It was first applied to general assemblies of the states under Louis the Seventh in France, about the middle of the twelfth century. But it is certain that, long before the introduction of the Norman language into England, all matters of importance were debated and settled in the great councils of the realm, a practice which seems to have been universal among the northern nations, particularly the Germans, and carried by them into all the countries of Europe, which they overran at the dissolution of the Roman Empire relics of which constitution, under various modifications and changes, 
are still to be met with in the diets of Poland, Germany, and Sweden, and the assembly of the estates in France, for what is there now called the Parliament is only the Supreme Court of Justice, composed of judges and advocates, which neither is in practice, nor is supposed to be in theory, a general council of the realm. With us in England, this general council has been held immemorially, under the several names of Michel Sinneth, or Great Council, Michel Gimot, or Great Meeting, and more frequently, Witena Gimot, or the Meeting of Wise Men. It was also styled in Latin, Commune Concilium Regni, Magnum Concilium Regis, Coria Magna, Conventus Magnatum, Vel Procerum, Assisa Generalis, and sometimes Communitas Regni Angliae. We have instances of its meeting to order the affairs of the kingdom, to make new laws, and to amend the old, or, as Lita expresses it, quote, Novis in juris, emersis nova constituere remedia, end quote, so early as the reign of Ina, king of the West Saxons, Offa, king of the Mercians, and Ethelbert, king of Kent, in the several realms of the Heptarchy, and, after their union, the mirror informs us that King Alfred ordained for a perpetual usage that these councils should meet twice in the year, or oftener, if need be, to treat of the government of God's people, how they should keep themselves from sin, should live in quiet, and should receive right. Our succeeding Saxon and Danish monarchs held frequent councils of this sort, as appears from their respective codes of laws. The titles whereof usually speak them to be enacted, either by the king, with the advice of his Wittenagemote, or wise men, as, quote, Haec sunt instituta, quae Edgarus rex concilio sapientum suorum instituit, quote, or to be enacted by those sages with the advice of the king, as, quote, Haec sunt judicia, quae sapientes concilio regis etelstani instituerunt, End quote. or lastly, to be enacted by them both together, as, quote, ai sunt institutiones, quas rex et mundus, et episcopi, sui cum sapientibus, suis instituerunt, End quote. There is also no doubt, but these great councils were held regularly under the first princes of the Norman line. Glanville, who wrote in the reign of Henry the Second, speaking of the particular amount of an immersement in the sheriff's court, says, It had never yet been ascertained by the general assize or assembly, but was left to the custom of particular counties. Here, the general assize is spoken of as a meeting well known, and its statutes or decisions are put in a manifest contradistinction to customs, or the common law and in Edward III's time an act of Parliament made in the reign of William the Conqueror was pleaded in the case of the Abbey of St. Edmundsbury, and judicially allowed by the court. Hence it indisputably appears that Parliaments, or general councils, are coeval with the kingdom itself. How those Parliaments were constituted and composed is another question, which has been matter of great dispute among our learned antiquarians. 
and particularly whether the commons were summoned at all, or, if summoned, at what period they began to form a distinct assembly. But it is not my intention here to enter into controversies of this sort. I hold it sufficient that it is generally agreed that, in the main, the constitution of Parliament, as it now stands, was marked out so long ago as the seventeenth year of King John, A.D. 1215, in the great charter granted by that prince, wherein he promises to summon all archbishops, bishops, abbots, earls, and greater barons, personally, and all other tenants-in-chief under the crown, by the sheriff and bailiffs, to meet at a certain place, with forty days' notice, to assess aids and scrutages when necessary. And this constitution has subsisted, in fact, at least from the year 1266, 49 Henry III, there being still extant writs of that date, to summon knights, citizens, and burgesses to Parliament. I proceed, therefore, to inquire wherein consists this constitution of Parliament, as it now stands, and has stood for the space of five hundred years. And in the prosecution of this inquiry, I shall consider, first, the manner and time of its assembling, secondly, its constituent parts, thirdly, the laws and customs relating to Parliament, considered as one aggregate body, fourthly and fifthly, the laws and customs relating to each house, separately and distinctly taken, sixthly, the methods of proceeding, and of making statutes in both houses, and lastly, the manner of the Parliament's adjournment, prorogation, and dissolution. 1. As to the manner and time of assembling. The Parliament is regularly to be summoned by the King's writ or letter, issued out of chancery by advice of the Privy Council, at least forty days before it begins to sit. It is a branch of the royal prerogative that no Parliament can be convened by its own authority, or by the authority of any, except the King alone. And this prerogative is founded upon very good reason. For, supposing it had a right to meet spontaneously, without being called together, it is impossible to conceive that all the members, and each of the houses, would agree unanimously upon the proper time and place of meeting. And if half of the members met, and half absented themselves, who shall determine which is really the legislative body, the part assembled, or that which stays away? It is therefore necessary that the Parliament should be called together at a determinate time and place, and highly becoming its dignity and independence, that it should be called together by none but one of its own constituent parts. And, of the three constituent parts, this office can only appertain to the King, as he is a single person, whose will may be uniform and steady. The first person in the nation, being superior to both houses in dignity, and the only branch of the legislature that has a separate existence, and is capable of performing any act at a time when no Parliament is in being. Nor is it an exception to this rule that, by some modern statutes, on the demise of a king or queen, if there be then no Parliament in being, the last Parliament revives, and is to sit again for six months, 
unless dissolved by the successor. For this revived Parliament must have been originally summoned by the Crown. It is true that, by a statute, 16 Charles I, Chapter 1, it was enacted that if the king neglected to call a Parliament for three years, the peers might assemble and issue out writs for the choosing one, and, in case of neglect of the peers, the constituents might meet and elect one themselves. But this, if ever put in practice, would have been liable to all the inconveniences I have just now stated, and the act itself was esteemed so highly detrimental and injurious to the royal prerogative that it was repealed by statute 16 Charles II, Chapter 1. From thence, therefore, no precedent can be drawn. It is also true that the Convention Parliament, which restored King Charles II, met above a month before his return, the Lords by their own authority, and the Commons in pursuance of writs issued in the name of the Keepers of the Liberty of England by authority of Parliament, and that the said Parliament sat till the twenty-ninth of December, full seven months after the Restoration, and enacted many laws, several of which are still in force. But this was for the necessity of the thing, which supersedes all law, for if they had not so met, it was morally impossible that the kingdom should have been settled in peace. And the first thing done after the king's return was to pass an act declaring this to be a good parliament, notwithstanding the defect of the king's writs, so that, as the royal prerogative was chiefly wounded by their so meeting, and as the king himself, who alone had a right to object, consented to waive the objection, this cannot be drawn into an example in prejudice of the rights of the crown. Besides, we should also remember that it was at that time a great doubt among the lawyers whether even this healing act made it a good parliament, and held by very many in the negative, though it seems to have been too nice a scruple. It is likewise true that at the time of the revolution, A.D. 1688, the Lords and Commons, by their own authority, and upon the summons of the Prince of Orange, afterwards King William, met in a convention, and therein disposed of the crown and kingdom. But it must be remembered that this assembling was upon a like principle of necessity as at the Restoration, that is, upon an apprehension that King James the Second had abdicated the government, and that the throne was thereby vacant, which apprehension of theirs was confirmed by their concurrent resolution, when they actually came together. And in such a case as the palpable vacancy of a throne, it follows ex necessitate rei that the form of the royal writs must be laid aside, otherwise no parliament can ever meet again. For let us put another possible case, and suppose, for the sake of argument, that the whole royal line should at any time fail, and become extinct, which would indisputably vacate the throne. In this situation, it seems reasonable to presume that the body of the nation, consisting of lords and commons, would have a right to meet and settle the government. Otherwise, there must be no government at all. And upon this, and no other principle, did the convention in 1688 assemble. The vacancy of the throne was precedent to their meeting, without any royal summons, 
not a consequence of it. They did not assemble without writ, and then make the throne vacant, but the throne being previously vacant by the king's abdication, they assembled without writ, as they must do if they assembled at all. Had the throne been full, their meeting would not have been regular. But as it was really empty, such meeting became absolutely necessary, and accordingly it is declared by Statute 1, William and Mary, Statute 1, Chapter 1, that this convention was really the two houses of Parliament, notwithstanding the want of writs or other defects of form. So that, notwithstanding these two capital exceptions, which were justifiable only on a principle of necessity, and each of which, by the way, induced a revolution in the government, the rule laid down is in general certain, that the king only can convoke a parliament. And this, by the ancient statutes of the realm, he is bound to do every year, or oftener, if need be. Not that he is, or ever was, obliged by these statutes to call a new parliament every year, but only to permit a parliament to sit annually for the redress of grievances and dispatch of business, if need be. These last words are so loose and vague that such of our monarchs as were inclined to govern without parliaments neglected the convoking of them, sometimes for a very considerable period, under pretense that there was no need of them. But, to remedy this, by the statute 16, Charles II, Chapter 1, it is enacted that the sitting and holding of parliaments shall not be intermitted above three years at the most. And by the statute 1, William and Mary, statute 2, chapter 2, it is declared to be one of the rights of the people, that for redress of all grievances, and for the amending, strengthening, and preserving the laws, parliaments ought to be held frequently. And this indefinite frequency is again reduced to a certainty by statute 6, William and Mary, chapter 2, which enacts, as the statute of Charles II had done before, that a new parliament shall be called within three years, after the determination of the former. End of section 15